Hi there, I'm Mark Icero, and this is the Highlighter Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 25th episode of the Highlighter Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is an opportunity for us to meet some pretty great people doing great things in the world and also a chance for us to talk about the best articles on race, education, and culture, which come from the Highlighter newsletter, which comes out every Thursday. I want to thank in particular the 40 new subscribers to the newsletter, which I think is a one-week record. But please keep folks coming, get that word of mouth out. Um, I think that we're definitely growing and it's wonderful to have so many listeners and so many readers. I am very excited to have Ann Niffler on today's show. And if you don't know her, Ann Niffler is a wonderful teacher and educator in San Francisco, but also she's going to be the leader of a new feature over at the newsletter. The feature is called Annotations, which seems appropriate. And what she's going to be doing is she's going to be highlighting one excellent episode of a podcast each week. Because a lot of you have said, hey, you know, when I'm driving or when I'm preparing dinner, it's hard for me to read. And I really wish that I could diversify uh, my, my podcast listening as well. So Anne's going to be focusing on that. And I wanted you to meet her. So in this conversation, you're going to get to know her a little bit more. She's going to talk about her first um, recommendation, um, which is going to be detailing a number of things. So we're going to be talking about microaggressions specifically in the classroom. Please listen in. And if you have any comments, please email them to me at mark at highlighter.cc or to anniffler at gmail.com. That's A-N-N-E-N-Y-F-F-E-L-E-R at gmail.com. Let's get to that interview. Ann Niffler, thank you so much for being in the studio today. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you. It's great that we're having some tea. We're just having a great conversation here, here on the Highlighter podcast. And I totally want to talk to you more about who you are. And um, I think the audience wants to hear from you too. So can you introduce yourself? Happily. I'm Ann Niffler. I'm an educator here in San Francisco and I wear many hats. So this morning I was observing a new teacher teach his advisory. I then came here during my prep to talk to you. I'll go back, meet with that teacher. Then I'll teach psychology. We'll create an experiment about memory. And then I'll teach AP World History where we're creating presentations on West Africa. That's a lot. That's a lot in just a few hours. And probably in the middle of it, you're going to be listening to some podcasts as well. Absolutely. On the way here, I was. I'm very excited um, to have you on the show because you are the leader of the new feature called Annotations Mm -hmm. in the highlighter. Love the name. We're going to be featuring, with Anne's leadership and help, one excellent podcast episode per week. Um, Are you excited about it? I'm really excited about it. I love conversations about interesting, deep, thought-provoking things, and I feel podcasts can help people get there. Yeah. Well, you're also a reader too. So one question is 
that I have is what do you read? How do you read? And then why podcasts? And how do you fit it all in? Oh, gosh. Okay. I'll start with reading. I read through my library. I don't own many books. The only books I own are books I've read more than once because of space and being married to a minimalist. So that means I go to the library a lot. And the way I do it is I request a bunch of books. So every time I go with my kids, which is about once a week, there's books waiting for me. So I always have a pile next to my bed and I read the first page of all the books to decide which one's next and whichever one grabs me is the next one I read. I, it's a lot of nonfiction. I'm a history teacher, but it's also pop culture and Jane Austen and right now Roxanne Gay. So it's kind of all over the map. Mm -hmm. And you also happen to have time to listen and to find podcasts, which is sort of why you are now the leader of annotations. When does that happen? And when did that start? Good question. I, it started in Japan. I was there five years ago during the summer with a one-year-old and I was very lonely. Um, we were there as a family for my husband's work and he was very busy. So I got to know Tokyo really well, but with a one-year-old it's lonely. So I somehow stumbled upon KQED's forum. I could listen to it in Tokyo. And so every night while making dinner, while he was playing, I would listen to it and feel connected to San Francisco. And I brought that back here with me. And you somehow find time. Mm -hmm. So for the folks out there, because the highlighter, I think, is the audience is probably folks who do a lot of reading or who might just want to know what is in my brain with my blurbs. <laughs> but, but lately, especially over the last year, people have said, I can't read in the car um, please, can I have some podcasts? And, but then others have said, how is it possible to read so much and to listen? So how, how do you do it as a podcast listener? I read and listen to podcasts in a similar way. If I start one and I don't like it, I put it down. I have no obligation to finish books. I have no obligation to finish podcasts. That being said, if I find one I love, I savor it. When I'm listening... I ride, I ride my bike to my job, and it takes about 40 minutes to get there and 40 minutes to get home. So that's my main podcasting time. I also put my kids in front of a TV for about 45 minutes to cook dinner from 5.15 to 6 o'clock. I'm a scheduled person, and that's when I listen to podcasts too. It is a way for me to connect with adults and to get something done. What are you going to be looking for, and um, what are you going to be hopefully offering to the highlighter um, audience with regard to annotations? Right now, it's really just ones I listen to that I want to talk to somebody about. I put the ones out there that I do because I think, oh, somebody's going to want to respond to this. So I hope people do. I hope when they listen to the podcast I recommend, they are able to say, I have something to say to Anne. I think I can help her with her question that she posted. Or I have this story that the podcast reminded me of and that they reach back to me and we can have that conversation. But as I do this, hopefully I'll get better at choosing ones that whoever the audience is, I start to learn about that audience and what they are interested in. I'm not just recommending whatever I feel like. I'm choosing ones I think make us better if we dive into what they bring to us. Yeah. I also appreciate the, the focus on conversation as well and wanting the audience to have a dialogue um, with you 
And so I'm going to try to come up with lots of different ways where you, audience, can um, email and talk to Anne. Maybe we'll have some sort of um, event where you, <laughs> where you get to answer their questions as well. Um, let's get to it. What have you chosen as your first selection for annotations? Well, last year when you and I started talking about doing this, I sent out to the Facebook world a question about what do you listen to, and I learned a lot of us listen to the same things across the country. And that meant that I needed to diversify. So the couple of podcasts people recommended that I'd never heard of, I found those, listened to those, and found some really good stuff. So the first one is a recommendation from a previous student of mine named Erica. Thank you, Erica. She recommended the podcast, You Had Me at Black. And in each episode, it's one person uh, telling a 15 to 25 minute story from their life and no conversation. You just dive into the story. Great. And so the one that you chose, what is the overall topic of it? What is it discussing? It's a student at the University of Washington. She's a grad student in, I believe, drama, theater, something like that. And she has a professor, an old white professor, who <clears throat> refers to her and her African-American classmates as you African-Americans. I see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, with that, Anne, let's uh, listen to a clip. <clears throat> So I look at my other black classmates. Okay, what y'all thinking? And one of my other classmates, he shakes his hand. He keeps mouthing, wow. My other classmate, she puts her head down. She's like, okay, all right. And then the other one, he's giving that, I was waiting for you at the door kind of head nod look to Mr. X. I give them all three a look like, I handled it last time. Y'all gonna handle it this time, okay? And so... My classmate raises his hand. And he's a black, tall, light-skinned dude, muscular. You don't want to mess with him when he's angry. And he was like, what do you mean by you African-Americans? <laughs> we all looked at Mr. X and his face turned beet red. And he was like, oh my gosh, did I say that again? And we all nodded our heads like, yeah, bro, you said it again. And he said, and I quote, well, I'm sorry. I'm still learning. I'm still learning and, and, and that's, that's it. I'm still learning and we're supposed to be okay with that. Wow. So what'd you think, Anne? Well, after you get past um, the story and just engaging with the story, um, I started to have thoughts of my own, my own story. I'm a white teacher. This is my first time in nine years having a white student. Um, so there, there are certainly times in my past where I possibly was the perpetrator of white microaggression. Should we define that term before we go yeah, any further? Yeah, because Bria in the podcast talks about it. What's your sense of it? And we can also just talk about what we think it is. So in psychology class, we define prejudice and we define discrimination. Prejudice being the attitude, discrimination being the action. And I feel like microaggression is somewhere in the middle. Like it's not this official discrimination, but somebody has a prejudice and it's affecting how they treat somebody. So it could be in the way they talk to them or their body language toward them. Um, something like that. Yeah. And in this case, in this podcast, it just really shows that the professor didn't intend um, to sort of be racist um, or do anything wrong and in fact was working against it and said, oh, I'm still learning. Mm. But it just 
it just was totally uh, clueless mm-hmm. and wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I yeah, it, it just happens every day in in classrooms. Um, and I know that when I was a teacher, uh, there would be moments where I didn't know what was going on, but something was going on that I had actually done. Mm-hmm. Um, and how brave of Bria and any student to name it to the teacher and shame on him for not correcting it and never it happening again. I think the main insult was the second time. Well, I mean, yeah, she took it upon herself to actually go and see her teacher. And I knew that probably something was going to, but I did not expect what was happening at the end Mm -hmm. because she already did the thing that she shouldn't have to do. Exactly. Exactly. So first off, kudos. And in the situations that we've experienced, have you had a student call you out or a hunch that you feel like you've been the perpetrator of white microaggression? You, by the way, people don't know, are white too. I I am, yes. Um, (laughs) And I used to be a teacher. Yeah, and it happened all the time, but I wouldn't, um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that it was always named um, explicitly. Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes it was difficult to figure out how to navigate. Um, so, for example, you know, I, I was called um, racist, for example, many, many times. And many times I think it was very warranted. And then sometimes um, there's this interesting interplay that sometimes happens where uh, students may state something um, for different reasons. And it was always hard for me sometimes to... to um, to really figure out what was going on, especially if the student may have been a jokester mm-hmm. in the class. But even if they are, that doesn't, I mean, they said it for a reason. Right. And I can assume because I taught with you for many years that you took it seriously, like that that wasn't ignored. Right. But I think that the biggest times when I knew that something was going wrong was actually when there was resignation, not mm. when there, not mm. when there was like a a moment of anger Mm -hmm. and not when I was called out. Mm -hmm. It was more when there was reticence or sort of like a a giving up um, where there was just a huge gap. And I noticed this actually, I think a little bit later in my teaching actually. And I think it's probably because I was getting older and I wasn't doing the work as much to be there um, present Mm -hmm. because I had had a lot of success. Right. And the, the great thing about teaching, but the worst thing about teaching is that you have to do it again year after year. <laughs> and there were a couple years where I was hoping my reputation was going to hold the day. Mm-hmm. And you have, like, you're there every day and you're creating your presence and your reputation every day. Um, have you noticed that things are any different this year or more recently? Um, with how you are in the class as you have listened to more podcasts, as you sort of learned more about yourself, your whiteness, your teaching? Mm. There is so much that I am working on because I continue to feel like I'm not measuring up to what the students deserve in their teacher. So there's a lot of directions I could take that. Um, I can share an example, I think, of white microaggression. Yeah. Okay. So... My first year teaching at the school that we taught at together, I created, I think it was first year, I created a project where seniors in an English class wrote a research paper on music 
and students got to choose a genre of music and then create a research question from that genre that they researched. And I had a student who um, was African-American and he said he was going to do opera. He was kind of a, a jokester of, of the class and so I laughed. And he said, I have someone in my family who sings in the opera. And I laughed again and the class got quiet. Mm -hmm. And I looked around and they're like, he's being serious, he does. And of course I apologized. But in that moment, that was me taking a prejudice. I assumed that this teenage boy looking at me did not know anything about the opera and that was wrong. Well, and you have a singing background too. I do, yeah. um, and I love the opera and um, shame on me. So I, I have moments like that in my past. So I just wanna name that so that we both go there and are brave and say, we've probably been perpetrators. Oh, absolutely. And thanks for sharing. And the great thing about young people is they are, it feels like even though any time where I have broken a relationship, there's been another opportunity where there's been forgiveness. Teenagers can be very forgiving. I mean, it, Bria in the podcast episode, she wanted to be forgiving. And in fact, like, it seems like she continues to sort of want things to get better. That's such a good point that she is willing to stay with this teacher even after the first transgress transgression and then he messes up again. He just breaks her trust again. Yeah, it's just no good. But maybe someday he'll like figure it out. Um, but not automatically. Like that's the thing is that there's got to be... We, people say that white teachers and white people need to do the work. And that's true. And it's not up to anybody, especially a person of color, to sort of say what the work is. But I think it's for white people to talk with, you know, with ourselves with, with regard to what the possible, not solutions, there's never going to be a solution, right. but what is the work here? So, so yes. I am curious if you've ever been in an affinity group, because that just made me think of those. Yeah, I, I have. And you want to define it? For our listeners? So usually, like, at least in the educational circles, an affinity group is um, you meet with people with, um, with some part of your identity that is similar. And usually what happens, at least in my experiences, is that when there's a white affinity group, a lot of the white people don't want to go there because sometimes there's some choice. So, for example, if it's totally open, a white person who happens to be gay would go to the gay affinity group over the white affinity group and sometimes what happens in affinity groups is that you go and you sort of learn more about yourselves but then you report back to the rest mm -hmm. of the group and usually white affinity groups don't have a good report out never actually is my guess we don't know this is big generalization so please please write write to me and tell me your thoughts on this but i don't think we know what it means to be white because like a lot of terms it just means being in power at this point. Like it's not connected to a specific European culture or any anything in particular. So what does it mean to be white? We have we don't sit with that. No. I don't think. So that's that's why white affinity groups and I've been in two, I think that's why they're very difficult. I think they are difficult. And I think one thing that happens a lot of times is that especially with educators, there's a, a lack of authenticity. And what I mean by that is we're all smart. And so therefore, sometimes we know what to say. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, we say things and then we appear that we are aware. Mm -hmm. um, 
but ultimately we're not totally going there. And um, white people are also very good at self-censoring. People say, for example, I'm a good listener. Sometimes I feel like I am, but a lot of times I also know that sometimes it's best not for me to say stuff. And number one, it's good for me not to say stuff as a white man, but sometimes it's me maybe protecting myself a little bit. Um, have you ever had a white affinity group that has been helpful? Um, mm -hmm. What do you feel the characteristics are? I did have a white affinity group that I thought was helpful. It was led by uh, my now principal, who is also white and has been in this work a lot longer. And her leadership, bringing in articles that we read about, giving us space to share stories, is what made it successful. Also, it might have helped that I was the only person also from our school, that it was a group of people from different schools. So I can't even tell you any of their names, let alone the schools they're at. I don't remember. It was years ago. So there was some anonymity that uh, provided some safety in having conversations about um, being white in a school where all of the students were students of color. Yeah. Well, I firmly, obviously with the highlight, I firmly believe in the power of text. Um, I do believe in our own personal experiences and our lived experiences, but I feel whether it's a podcast episode or whether it's an article, I think that we have to bring ourselves to a text and then also talk about a text or else I think the walls go up. Mm -hmm. But if it's just our experiences, I feel like it's much harder to, to navigate and to really have true dialogue. So maybe that's sort of what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's also interesting is that even though you were an affinity group of like people, mm -hmm. all white, it was across difference, meaning not at all at, all, um, at, at the same school. Yep. Another thing though that I have been thinking about as a possible way to mitigate microaggressions is for the teacher to not always think that they know everything. Hmm. I couldn't agree more. And I think I am very surprised about where I've ended up as an educator because so many people could be doing the work I do better than me. Um, but if I have anything that has kept me, um, I'm in my ninth year at the school I'm at, um, I would say it's persistence. I get a lot wrong, um, but I see it and I want to fix it. And I keep trying and I keep coming back. And uh, I think the best teachers do the same. And when you start hanging out with the teachers that you think could do no wrong and are phenomenal, you hear them also recognize that they have more work to do. Yeah, I'm very happy that, that you shared that. Because I think that there's this thing structurally with teaching is that teachers are supposed to be the authority figures. And they're supposed to offer some clarity to the world. And even as much as young people want, um, want us to tell the truth, I think young people also want us to have some wisdom that things are going to be all right. In this case, like, I'm not necessarily sure like white teachers from their lived experiences would necessarily have the specific answer for a student of color. And so therefore, it's a different, for me, I think it's a different kind of confidence. Because I remember there were years where I was not confident and very inquiry-based, but that felt scattered to the students. Mm -hmm. They're like, who is this person? Like, 
seemingly very caring, but like, where, where's his, uh, where's his core? Mm-hmm. The years where I had the most success, I was inquiry based, but confidently so. Mm-hmm. I was like, I wasn't trying to um, apologize for the stuff I didn't know. It was much more, I feel, hands-on as far as like, we're here together. I'm confident with what I can do. And also, I'm still learning. But my question is, though, how do we accelerate the growth? I don't think he learned. I think him saying it again meant he didn't learn. And those were empty words. So... I think the answer is to keep learning, but to do it faster. <laughs> um, he, shouldn't, he shouldn't still be learning, not to say you African-Americans. Like that uh, was inappropriate the first time. And then to have a student brave enough to call it out, that should be done. I do want to name, I do think that we as a country need to do a better job of recruiting teachers of color. I don't think our country right now is going to do that. Um, so I want to talk briefly about a school I heard of that is doing something right now, which is they have a residency program and they take students or they take future teachers with a college degree, but no teaching credential and they pair them with a teacher so that it's legal. They're not taking over a classroom without a credential. And for a year, they help them get their credential at night and teach them how to teach during the day. And then the next year they, they are certified. So I just want to put out there any previous students listening or anybody listening that has a college degree, thinks they'd like teaching and thinks I don't have a credential and that's going to hold me back. Find a school that's willing to help you because I feel like recruitment is um is lacking. Like we're not we're not doing our job if only white women majority white women are the ones who want to teach. Yeah, there's something structurally, physically wrong with this idea of lamenting that there's not enough um, candidates of color and basically not changing anything. Right. You, but you I don't think the answer is to hire people that don't have credentials and hope you don't get caught. No, totally. I mean, that's not the answer either. But yes, I also know about residency programs. I think that they're an excellent idea. People say, oh, they're too expensive. And like, what does that mean? It just... It just means that we're unwilling to to make the changes that are necessary. I've also been thinking a whole lot about after the residency and then after, say, the the clearing of the credential, it, how do we get teachers to stick in, um, you know, between years three and nine? And if you're a teacher of color who is one of the few at your campus, it's not going to be particularly fun or easy or comfortable. Um, one of the problems, I think, is if 80 or 90 percent of the teachers at a school are white, the amount of effort that needs to, the investment, it just has to be year after year after year, and, and it's not easy. Like, everybody gets mad at Silicon Valley, you know, for not having enough of a diverse workforce, mm-hmm. but here we are in education where we're serving almost... Absolutely. Yeah, and I just don't, you just don't hear of too many things structurally that are happening. That's a shame. We have to figure it out. Oh, I think we just did. I think we did. <laughs> and it has been wonderful to have you here. Before you go, mm-hmm. I want to make sure that there are some ways where people can contact you. Yes. You want to talk about um, your annotation. So mm-hmm. what are different ways that they can contact you? First, let me say, 
You can look it up. I'm an Enneagram number six, which means I'm a fearful person on the inside. And I was nervous going into this. My main fear was a, a negative reaction, but I've decided that the worst thing would be no reaction. That just, we have this conversation and the, I put these podcasts out and um, nothing. So even if it's negative, I will brace myself. Please give me any feedback you have in the kind of podcasts you wanna hear. I would love to have a conversation about this podcast. If you have thoughts on this topic, please share. How do you share? There's a couple different ways. If you just wanna talk with me, text if you have my number, or you can send me an email at anniffler at gmail.com. And I think we're trying to get a Facebook page set up. We might be, yeah. And I will also write down how to spell your name, but just for, <laughs> make sure that you're spelling it out, your, your email, please. A-N-N-E-N-Y-F-F-E-L-E-R. Great, at Gmail. Um, yeah, like we are trying to figure out more of a forum. Um, it is sometimes challenging to talk online. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel like if we get a good core, robust um group mm -hmm. that go that goes back week after week i think that people will get to know each other this is my theory yeah so i'll take my ap world history class right now 20 students same last year there's always at least one that wants to talk to me about history all the time will stay after class to talk to me about something that they learned so my theory is about one in 20 of the people listening to the podcast or one in 20 of the people getting the highlighter are the type that as soon as they read something or hear something, they want to talk about it. So we need to find a space for those people. So if it's not Facebook, I know you also tried to set up um, some sort of link, some sort of button to press in the email where they can make a comment. Am I right? Yeah. So be looking uh, this Thursday for the next annotations and there's going to be a link that you can... Uh, click on in order to continue the conversation and also I'm going to be highlighting the lead article every week And so even though all the articles are great and should are worthy of discussion um, I really want to focus on your annotation as well as the lead article. So maybe this is gonna all blow up Anne. <laughs> what I do want is more podcasts to listen to so if you have a podcast out there that you think I should be listening to that you think this group of people who read articles on race, education, and culture should hear, please let me know, especially if you have a specific episode that changed how you viewed the world. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Mark. I want to thank Anne yet again for being on the show. Thank you so much. And I want to encourage you all to please email her at anniffler at gmail.com or me at mark at highlighter.cc with all of your feedback and comments about not just this episode, but the podcast in general. I hope that you have a great week. I'm really excited for the next issue of the Highlighter Newsletter. I do need some pet photos, though, so please email me your pet photos as well at mark at highlighter.cc. And one last thing is I'm very excited to say that we have 14 ratings over at iTunes for this podcast, and they're overwhelmingly positive. If you appreciate this podcast and want it to go to even more people across the country, please go over there and rate and review over on iTunes. Have a great